Let us read these first few verses of Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. I wanted to start this evening with a question, and this is the question. If I were to ask you, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What truths do you think you would want to communicate to someone for them to understand what the gospel is? If you haven't come across the Gospel Coalition before, they're an American organization which provide excellent resources of all different sorts. Uh, They do conferences, podcasts, written articles, um, videos. There's lots of excellent stuff there. Um, And I'd actually thoroughly recommend you go away and look at it for all sorts of good stuff. Uh, There's an article on their website entitled, What is the Gospel? Which is very convenient to help me answer this question. Uh, It's not very long. It defines the gospel as the good news of what uh, God has done in Jesus Christ. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So it speaks about human revolt against God, uh, sin, and God's judgment on that sin. Uh, It talks about Christ bearing the penalty for our sin when he died on the cross. It talks about repentance and faith in Jesus reconciliation with God, and how Jesus cancels our sin and restores the brokenness of our lives. And it ends with a new heaven and a new earth where we can enjoy the presence of God forever. It's a very good article. It's very clear and very helpful, and it's resounding with biblical truth. If you've never heard the gospel, uh, the, the good news of Jesus, then uh, come and talk to me about it or go and read this article. Preferably, come and talk to someone about it. Um, It would be great to share it with you. So what I have to say about that article is really an observation and not a criticism. Um, But my observation is this, that in in that article and in my experience, when we talk about the gospel in contemporary Western evangelical circles, we don't really seem to use the language of the kingdom of heaven very much. 
You don't seem to use the language of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Cast your mind back to the last gospel conversation that you had with someone who's not a Christian. Did you talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God with them? Is that, is that the sort of terminology you would automatically default to when you're talking about the gospel? And then if it isn't part of the language that we use very often, when we read it in our Bibles, as we do here in Matthew chapter 25, it can sound a bit strange, can't it? The parable we have before us this evening begins, Jesus says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. So before we go any further, I thought it would be helpful to think for a few minutes about what the kingdom of heaven is in Matthew's gospel. What is the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel? So here we go. Firstly, the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to be so bold as to say, is really the central theme of Jesus's teaching in Matthew's gospel. It's the central theme of Jesus's teaching in Matthew's gospel. If you were to flick back to uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the introduction to the gospel. And if you flick across just to the next page, uh, and you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins his preaching ministry. And guess what he says? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's an identical phrase, and it's how Matthew chooses to introduce the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the language and the theme of the kingdom of heaven is all over Matthew's gospel. Many of Jesus' parables start in Matthew 13, particularly, the kingdom of heaven is like this, a treasure hidden in a field. It's there in the Sermon on the Mount, Chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It's kingdom language, isn't it? I could go on and on. There's lots of other examples. When you read Matthew's gospel and ask the question, what did Jesus come to teach? Well, the answer is it's all about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, the kingdom of heaven is the sphere in which God is worshipped and served as king. It's a basic definition for you. It's the sphere in which God is worshipped and served as king, and where his blessing is experienced. Consider uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you can see straight away there, can't you, that not everyone enters the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody gets through the door, and that those who do... Well, they're the ones who submit to the rule of the Father in heaven. They're the ones who submit to the rule of the Father in heaven. Or uh, even the parable we're considering this evening, the parable of the ten virgins. At the end of this parable, 
which is about the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says. The wise virgins go in to enjoy the wedding feast with the bridegroom. It's a picture of God's people entering the kingdom of heaven and enjoying his blessing. The kingdom of heaven uh, is the central theme of Jesus' ministry, and it's the sphere in which God is worshipped and served as king and where his blessing is experienced. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. Thirdly, the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? But hasn't yet been fully established. By not yet fully established, I mean that those who belong to the kingdom of heaven don't yet experience its full blessing. And there are those who are opposed to the kingdom of heaven who haven't yet been dealt with. Again, you can see that in the parable of the ten virgins. We're still waiting for the kingdom of heaven to come and the celebration to begin. The kingdom of heaven is near, not yet fully established. And fourthly, in a gospel all about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Uh, If you were to flick back to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2, Magi come from the east to Jerusalem and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? This is right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is the king, not Herod. And then right at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 37 As Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's a sign hanging above him. What does it say? It says this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king at the beginning and at the end. And perhaps most clearly of all, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, we often think of the Great Commission um, as being given to outline our mission here on earth, don't we? And of course, it is. That's what Jesus calls his disciples to do. But it's also a great statement of the power and the authority of Jesus, isn't it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king. All of that authority is mine, and you are to teach people to go out and to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the ruler. Isn't that a wonderful thought? As we begin this evening, we live in such a broken world, don't we? And we see its brokenness and we feel and we experience and we participate in its brokenness every single day of our lives. But one day, we will live in the kingdom of heaven, a new world where Jesus is the king. So when we come to the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus begins, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. We know, don't we, that he's talking on the central theme of his ministry. This is something that's really important to Jesus. This is what he's come to tell the world about. We know that he's talking about a kingdom in which God is worshipped and served as king and where his people experience his blessing. We know that he's talking about a kingdom that we're yet to fully see. 
but it's a kingdom where Jesus himself is the king. This is something that God's people should be excited about, isn't it? We should all be on tenterhooks this evening to hear what Jesus is going to say about the kingdom of heaven, because this is what we as his people are waiting for. And tonight, then, Jesus is going to talk to us a little bit about how we should be waiting for the kingdom of heaven. How we should be waiting for the kingdom of heaven. So let's take a look at the parable in Matthew chapter 25. The picture here is of a wedding in first century Israel. And to understand this, we're going to need to abandon some of our ideas of a British wedding with white dresses and cake and hats and honeymoons and all of that good stuff. Things were done slightly differently back then. There were slightly varying understandings of what an, uh, uh, an Israelite wedding at that time would have looked like, depending on which commentator you read. But if I, I'm, I'm going to try and paint a bit of a picture for you, and I think it will be helpful for us to understand what the main thrust of this parable is. What's happening here? Uh, is that the bride and groom have started out their wedding day uh, with a small ceremony at the bride's home. This would have been a typical pattern. It's a small and intimate ceremony, perhaps with just a few family members, maybe some close friends. Uh, and this is the beginning of the proceedings for the day. It's like a pre-ceremony. And it goes on for a little while. We need to remember, don't we, that uh, Jesus is talking in a time and a culture where people don't wear watches. They don't have clocks on the wall. There's no news at six, so you can set your watch by the, by the chimes of Big Ben. And if you've spent any time in any other cultures, you'll know that even today, many, many different national, nations around the world have a very different concept of time to what we have here in England. Some people are much more relaxed about time. And so the celebrations at the bride's home go on much later than expected. By the time uh, they're ready and done and, and about to move on to the groom's home for the next stage of the celebration, it's been a long, long time. In fact, we're told it's about midnight, aren't we? When they're finally done, the plan at this point is that the bride and groom will process up to the groom's home uh, for the next stage of the banquet, and these ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, are going to come out to greet them with their lamps. We can think of the, the ten virgins as a little bit like bridesmaids, uh, and their job is to go out with their lamps uh, to greet the bride and the groom, to bring some light, to bring some joy and some festivity as they process into the groom's home. That's their role in this uh, wedding. That's their job. That's what they've been asked to do. Now, as we see in the story, the bride and the groom are a long time in coming. And so the bridesmaids fall asleep. There's nothing in the parable that should make us think that that's wrong or unreasonable. It's been a long time. It's midnight. They're tired. Uh, and both the wise and the foolish virgins fall asleep. And then at about midnight, it says, the shout goes up to announce that the bride and the groom are finally arriving. So the ten virgins wake up, uh, and they start to make themselves ready with their lamps. The five wise virgins have anticipated that, that there might be a long delay, 
And so they've brought some extra oil along with them, just in case this scenario happened. But the five foolish virgins aren't prepared. They've run out of oil, and they haven't thought to bring any extra. So now that means they can't do their job. They can't go out to greet uh, the bride and the groom as they come up to the groom's home. They can't bring light. They can't add to the festive occasion. They've failed in their job. Uh, So that means they've got to go down to the shops. It's midnight, of course, remember. Uh, I don't know how many shops are going to be open at this time of night or how many shopkeepers are going to be that pleased to have five foolish virgins knocking on their door. Probably not very. But let's assume that they managed to get some oil from somewhere and they rush back to the groom's home. When they get there, the doors to the groom's home have been closed and they can't get in. They're shut out. I read this week that parables are a little bit like jokes in the sense that if someone has to explain it to you, it can lose a little bit of its punch. You know, if somebody has to explain a joke to you, you can see what you were supposed to think was funny, but it's not not really funny anymore, is it? Sort of, it's lost its punch. It doesn't elicit the same physical and emotional reaction. And parables, I think, can be a bit like that. It's a helpful thought for us this evening because even though we need the parables explaining to us, they were written at a different time and for a different culture, we can understand that there is a punchline, can't we? We can understand that there's something that's meant to have an impact that would have been a bit shocking and would have brought a reaction from those listening. I think the gut punch of this particular parable of the ten virgins is that the five foolish virgins look and feel like they belong. They're part of the wedding party. They've been given a job to do as part of the celebration. They've got lamps. They've been stood outside waiting for the bride and the groom. They've been hanging out all day with the five wise virgins. They look like they belong and they're going to be part of the celebration. But when the bride and the groom actually arrive, They're unprepared. They are not ready. They cannot do the job that they're supposed to do. And when they finally sourced some oil for their lamps and they knock on the door, the response is really quite chilling, isn't it? I don't know you. I don't know you. You look to all extents and purposes like you belong in that wedding celebration. But the answer they get at the door is, I don't know you. I don't know you. It's a shock. Well, this parable is about waiting for the kingdom of heaven. So what do the different elements of this story represent for us? Now we've talked it through. What is Jesus trying to teach? In the the context of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 25 comes right after Matthew chapter 24, which is all about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It's about when he's going to return. And so the obvious way to understand this parable is that the bridegroom represents Jesus and the 10 virgins represent the visible church waiting for Jesus to arrive. So what can we learn from this parable? And the first thing that I want us to learn from this parable is that we are people who are waiting 
for the return of the Lord Jesus. We're people who are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. This might sound quite obvious. Uh, In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has talked a lot about when he's going to return and some of the circumstances of his return and some of the hardships that his people will face. And in this parable here, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus just assumes that his people are waiting for his coming. The ten virgins are waiting for the bridegroom to arrive as the church is waiting for Jesus. God's people are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. I wonder if that's how you think of yourself, primarily as someone who's waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. When you wake up in the morning and you open your Bible and you pray to God as you begin your day, are you thinking, I wonder if the Lord will return today? I wonder if I'll meet him today. Wouldn't it be great if the Lord were to return? Because that's what I'm waiting for. That's what I see my whole life as working towards. The return of the Lord Jesus. What a joy that would be. Come, Lord Jesus. If I were to ask you what you're working towards, would it occur to you to say, well, Ultimately, I'm working towards being with Jesus in heaven. Everything else is just a step along the way. It'd be quite a, a countercultural answer, wouldn't it? Um, I hope you see what I mean. Do we, do we think of the return of the Lord Jesus as a focal point for our lives, as the climax of everything that we've worked and lived for, and the end goal of everything that we desire and work towards? Are we people who are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus? Do we have a waiting mindset? Of course, the opposite of a waiting mindset, I think, would be a a staying mindset, wouldn't it? If we're waiting for the Lord, then our treasure, the things that we really long for and love, will be in heaven with the Lord. That's what we're waiting for. But if we have a staying mindset and Jesus is just an afterthought, then our treasures will be here on earth. Those are the things we'll be treasuring. So when something breaks or goes wrong, well, if we have a waiting mindset, it's disappointing, but it wasn't what we were living for, is it? So so we keep on moving, longing for the Lord Jesus to return. But if we have a staying mindset and Jesus is just an afterthought, well, then it's going to hurt us, isn't it? It's going to cause us pain when the things that we've worked towards and the things that we treasure are taken from us or they're damaged or broken because we love the things of this world. It hurts us. Why might we sometimes be prone to forget that we are people who are waiting for Jesus to return? Perhaps it could be um, the deceitfulness of wealth. The Bible has a lot of warnings about um, the, uh, money and wealth. Matthew 19, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's something particularly dangerous about money for Christians. Money deceives us. When we have lots of money, we're easily distracted by all the things that we can have here and now. Whereas if we don't have so much, it's more natural for us to be thinking about what we're waiting for in heaven. 
Perhaps we might be prone to forget just because we're very busy. And other things crowd Jesus out. Perhaps uh, we might be prone to forget because of some of the prevailing philosophies of our culture. They can impact us, can't they, in ways we're not immediately aware of. I wonder if you've ever heard someone justify some kind of extravagance um, or foolishness by, by saying, well, you only live once. I'm going to blow all of my month's pay packet on going to this particular event or doing this particular thing because, you know, you only live once, don't you? You only live once. Well, I, I suppose with a Darwinian sort of worldview, of course, that, that would be true, wouldn't it? You know, your existence evolved into being by accident and it will be completely ended when, you're, uh, when your mortal body dies. So well, you might as well make the most of the short time that you have here. But that's not a Christian mindset, is it? That's not a waiting for the Lord Jesus mindset. You don't only live once. You wait for the Lord Jesus. And the abundance and joy of life only really starts when Jesus returns, when he comes back. I don't have to do that thing now. It's not quite so desperate because actually all of the highlights of my existence are going to come after this mortal body dies. All of the highlights of my existence are going to be in, in heaven with the Lord Jesus. The best is yet to come. You could say the same about the idea of a bucket list, couldn't you? If life is ending and that's it, well, yes, cram it all in now quickly because there's not going to be any other chance. But if I'm waiting for life to start when Jesus returns, why would I be worried about doing everything now? Do I have a waiting mindset? Do I view this life as a process of waiting for the Lord Jesus to return, serving him faithfully, worshipping him, and hoping and looking for the day when he returns or I see him face to face. We have a waiting mindset. Jesus assumes in this parable that his people have a waiting mindset. Secondly, we need to be genuinely ready for the return of the king. Don't be content with merely outward forms of religion. The plain teaching of this parable is that when the Lord returns, there will be some among the visible church who are like the wise virgins and some who are like the foolish virgins. There will be some who see the Lord's coming and are ready to greet him with great joy and others who find themselves shockingly unprepared. The five foolish virgins in Jesus' parable were unprepared, weren't they? And the bridegroom ended up saying to them, I don't know you. I don't know you. And the implication of this parable is that there will be many who look like they are part of God's church, who look like they belong, who've been given jobs to do, who hang around with God's people, but who are ultimately told, I don't know you. I don't know you. This was the gut punch of the parable, remember. How can those who've been waiting there all day not be allowed into the wedding feast? And this is the gut punch that we're supposed to feel. How can these people, who look like they've belonged in the church for so long, 
suddenly be turned away from the kingdom when Jesus returns? How could that be? It's shocking. This is a parable, isn't it, that speaks to God's people through the ages. So uh, it's a word that speaks to the Pharisees of Jesus' day. It's a word that speaks to the, the medieval church lost in all sorts of Roman heresy. It's a word that speaks to the nominal high churches of today where they honor Jesus with their lips, but they're not prepared to really submit to his rule. But it also has to be a word, uh, a parable, that, that causes us to search our hearts, doesn't it? And to consider what it means to us here. It can be very easy, can't it, to be part of the local church, perhaps without really being part of God's family. If you have regular attendance at church and commitments on, on different rotors, you can look like you're part of the church, can't you? If you stand behind a pulpit and preach, well, you must be part of God's people, right? If you've been around for a few years and you've heard a few sermons, you can probably give the right answers to lots of questions. Knowledge and church and serving in different ministries are all good things, or given to us by God for our blessing. But if, if our religion only consists of these outward forms without any real love for the Lord, then we are unprepared for his return. We are unprepared for his return. We already referenced Jesus' words in, in chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Did we not look like we were among your people, part of your church? But Jesus tells them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. It's very similar actually to the parable, isn't it? I don't know you. I don't know you. But look, I'm, I, I'm one of the ten virgins. I've got, a, I've got a lamp. I've been here all day. I've been given a job to do. I've done miracles and I've cast out demons. I've served in that children's club or in this Sunday school class. I've hoovered the church every week for decades. I look like part of the church. But where is your heart? What do you really love? Who are you when nobody else is looking? Have you truly repented of your sin and trusted Jesus? Or have you just managed to dress yourself up so that you look like you follow Jesus? It searches our hearts, doesn't it? And it's a sobering challenge. The consequences of being unprepared on the day of the Lord are horrific. They're awful to consider. Brothers and sisters, if, if you were to be feeling convicted by any of this, then that's a mercy, isn't it? Because there is still time now to repent and turn to Jesus. There is still time to check our hearts and to check that we are truly following him. We need to be genuinely ready for the return of the king. Don't be content with merely outward forms of religion. And then thirdly and finally, we need to be prepared to wait for a long time. 
you need to be prepared to wait for a long time. At the end of this parable, uh, in chapter 25, verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. In the parable, the bride and the groom are a long time in coming. And the implication then is that Jesus may not, his return may not be for a long time. It may not be for a long time. In the immediate aftermath of Jesus' ascension into heaven, I think some of his disciples imagined that his return was going to be quite quick, perhaps just a matter of days or weeks. That's the implication of some of Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians and Peter's writing in 2 Peter. Maybe 2,000 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, we're a bit more accustomed to the idea that it's not just going to be a matter of weeks before Jesus returns. But it is still good for us to know, I think, isn't it, that Jesus warned that we could be waiting a very long time. Nothing's gone wrong. The clouds of heaven on which he will return haven't broken down. He hasn't got distracted. He hasn't forgotten about us. He warned us, he told us right here that his return could be a long time coming. And when the mockers and the scoffers say, well, where is he? Where is this coming that he promised? We can say, well, he warned us he could be a long time. Peter told the church not to forget. In 2 Peter 3 verse 8, he says, don't forget that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's been 2,000 years, hasn't it, since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Well, in in heaven's time, that's, that's just like two days, isn't it? It's just two days. He's not slow. He's giving people a window in which they can repent and become part of his people and look forward to the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And I think knowing that Jesus could be a long time in coming should cause us to think differently about how we act now. If we knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow, if you, if you knew that tomorrow, 12 o'clock, Jesus is returning, you'd probably act quite differently, wouldn't you, to how you would act knowing he could be a long time. If you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, you'd be up all night, wouldn't you, talking to your family and your friends and your neighbors urging them to turn to Jesus now before it's too late. But knowing that there could be a long wait, we still need to understand that it's urgent, don't we? I mean, Jesus could come at any time. But perhaps we start to think that our Christian witness often plays out as as more of a marathon than a sprint. It's often a long-term goal, isn't it, to talk to someone about the gospel and to see their life transformed. It doesn't always happen overnight. If we know that Jesus' return could be a long time, we start thinking about passing on the gospel to the next generation, to our children and to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. We start thinking about providing for the church in 
in the decades to come with buildings and facilities from which the gospel can be proclaimed. That's why we have a church relocation project, isn't it? Because we want to be able to serve the people of Lamington and Warwick in, in decades to come. We start to think about raising up pastors and missionaries and sending people off to, to seminaries so that in the years to come, we can have more faithful Bible teachers in the church. We adopt a different strategy. And we pace ourselves, don't we, by God's grace for a lifetime of service. If we know Jesus could be a long time, we start asking questions like, how can I grow in Christian maturity and Christ-likeness in the longer term? What am I putting in place to help me grow in knowledge and love for the Lord? What do I have in place to enable me to be a good witness to my friends and my colleagues in the decades to come? How is my time most effectively used over the long term? We need to plan in the light of the fact that Jesus may not return quickly. He may not return quickly. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Are you ready for Jesus to return with power and glory? Are you ready?